Imagine you have been hired to sell insurance for Liberty Mutual. You show up your first day and you're directed to a cubicle. You sit down at your desk and next to your phone is a ruler with the inscription, activity rules success. Given it's day one, you want to exceed expectations by a factor of a few hundred. And to do what any insurance salesman does, that's to pick up the phone, smile and dial, and hope like hell someone on the other side of that phone will give you a few seconds. And the best part, you don't even have to think as you've been handed a script to say exactly what those words say. You then make 400 calls a day. And on a good week, 10% of those lead to a brief discussion and 10% of those lead to a meeting and the cycle begins. How many times a day do you fail? 315 or almost 600, 1600 times a week. And it's soul crushing. Or is it? As awful as it is, when you look back and you think later, that was the best thing that ha happened to me. But how could that be? Because there's a big secret that success has a starting point and it's called failure. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Our guest today is so passionate about failure as a path to success. He wrote about it in his Wall Street best-selling book called Fail More, Embrace, Learn, and Adapt to Failure. His name is Bill Woodich. He's a professional speaker, CEO, entrepreneur, and the best part of the book and my favorite. Along the way, he discovered a lost art, the art of being human. This is his story of transformation. Bill Wittich, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Chuck, can I just take that in? Because it's probably the most exhilarating, you're talking about me, but it's probably the best, by far, opening I've ever heard in my life. I, I, I just want to take it in. And well, you said I, that, I, I pulled this out of the drawer. It's not the same ruler, but it says activity, <laughs> activity rules success. Activity rules success, indeed. Well, I got to say, Bill, I really enjoyed the book. If for no other reason, that particular book, I mean, you've written, you've, you know, always forward preceded this a couple years before. But I think when I read this book, what really spoke to me as the sales guy who went through the same thing that you did, it was empowering people to rediscover the lost art of human connection. That's not something people write about very much. So here's the big question, Bill. At what point did you come to the conclusion that failure is indeed the path as opposed to any other paths? Chuck, I had this insatiable need to validate myself and it was really to ghost to the past. My father who had passed away, who never really gave me the validation that, that I cherished, needed, um, and, and it was part of my anger. And a lot of the anger and a lot of the fear of the unknown sitting in a huge company coming a long way from Western PA where I was sequestered in a small factory factory of my choice with foreclosed futures. I, 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 was, I was scared, I was angry, and, and I knew that if I was going to be successful, my only prescription to that date was on that ruler. Activity is going to rule success. So I thought, okay, what am I willing to do to get and burn my boat? I will do anything to become successful. I scratched and I clawed and I, and I fought my way up the leaderboard. When I got there, I, I, I took time and I took a deep breath and, and I went back again the next year and did it again for two years in a row. At that point, something came over me and I, I would encourage the listener for the viewer to, to think about this. There's a certain point in your life when you have to step back 
and you have to think, am I? Am I good enough? Do I need the external validation? Do I need the cars, the money? Who am I without it? And am I good enough in my eyes, not the external vision? And the metaphorical middle finger I say of life came up and I just said, I am good enough. And at that point, I wanted, I felt the need, Chuck. I can still remember the top of that mountain in Switzerland where their, their top sales people were, you know, were flown and first class at the St. Regis. And I just felt I was missing hanging out with my clients. I was missing getting to know them. I was on a treadmill, a donic treadmill, 365 days, and I wasn't making the art of connection. I was treating people as concepts. That was my moment. At that moment, I made a choice, and the choice is one of the ones that became the rest of my future. That, that is to meet people as people, not concepts. Well, that's a really good insight into it because what you were doing is you were smiling and dialing. I can only imagine Liberty Mutual said, hey, here's the good news. Here's your script. Do what it is this script says. And you mentioned in the book and also in your sizzle reel on, on your website, and we'll get to that later, but you talk about there was no rapport. So the very tactical act of 400 calls a day was activity. And maybe that will lead to success, but it traded off to the very missing component that I, th I think to me caused you or at least inspired you to write your book. You know, I started to learn that effort and results sometimes are mutually exclusive and the banks don't cash our efforts, they cash our results. Right. And I thought, and I thought man, I got a hard head and I, you know, I'm following this script and I've been flown up around all these cities and this script is supposed to work because it, it, it just, it's worked for other people. It's got to work for me and at some point. I'm just not making enough calls. Well, I was making enough calls. My, my, that was the days where telephones were up to your ears. So I used to go home and my ears like a cauliflower. flower. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, there's got to be another way. And I finally left all the brochures and all the scripts and all the thinking about what I was supposed to do to meet a person and just met a person from the heart. Stop looking at the wallet, stop looking at what that number would be on a leaderboard and just start to get to know them as, as a person. Didn't try to sell them, just asked them where they were from. Tried to gain common ground and really became curious about them and not what they could do for me. And, and the entire world changed for me. As you were twisting and turning and you were figuring out in your own transformation, there's a couple key concepts out of the book that I want to be able to, 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 to just brainstorm with you. I'd love your thoughts on this. And I want to quote this perfectly. It said to the reader, as you're reading this book, it said, you will wage battle against the need for certainty and the discomfort of uncertainty. Leaning into the discomfort of uncertainty is the path to growth and it opens your mind to new possibilities. What is the stigma that keeps so many people from recognizing the words, but failing to act on the wisdom? It's emotional, because the brain's number one function is to preserve itself. It doesn't like to be outside the cocoon of certainty. It does not like to be out there risking, because as we evolved through time to risk was to be cut out and be subject to peril by the saber-toothed tiger of the warring tribe. We needed gossip. We needed to stick with people and we sure as heck didn't need to stick out. So the brain wants to be safe. It doesn't want to preserve. It doesn't want to do the things you've done in life and to continue to do in life. It doesn't want to put itself out there. So something bad could happen to it. So the first thing is the emotional embrace is much, much more difficult to break from than the logical understanding. You might understand, Chuck, intellectually, what it is that you absolutely have to do. But unless you embrace that emotionally, you're not going to do it for long. So you've got to be able to do enough to get used to those small incremental stings 
of rejection that after a while, those lacerations, they heal. The, re the sting, not as bad. The reward, so much worth the pain. As you describe your own path in the book, you also talk about this thing called forgiveness. And often for those of us that grow up, whether it's in a Christian home, it tends to be religious dogma about forgiving others. And we all appreciate that. But as a salesman making 400 calls a day and failing often, you talk about the importance of forgiving oneself. Why do you talk about that? I think there's a dissonance in dogma. And unless you have a discipline to understand where the origin and what it's coming from and what it's doing to you, the deleterious, if I'm going to stay with the Ds, the deleterious effect it has on you if you don't, then you have to know the nature of your forgiveness. And you have to know that it's about you as much as it is about anyone else, probably more so about you. So, you know, Chuck, mine was for something I could never go back, a person I could never see again. And there I was in the middle of this ocean. And I was in Cabo San Lucas, took clients fishing. And I thought, you know, my father used to love to fish. This would have been an experience of his lifetime. And it wasn't about me giving him the bounce so he could say, you did great, son. It was about him experiencing that. At that moment in that ocean, over a few cervezas probably, I thought, you know what? I, I'm going to let this go in this way. I'm going to forgive it. I may never understand the origins of what became his weakness, may never, and I'll have to be okay with that. But I'm going to forgive this. I'm going to move through the phase of understanding where I can and, and what I can. And if I can't, I'm going to ultimately be in that place where I'm happier. And that is something I learned by first following the logic of it and then feeling it emotionally. Yeah, you know, you certainly talk about it. And I think all of us recognize as salespeople that people buy on emotion and support it with logic and let many other people flip it. They think, well, if I go in with the features and they seem logical and then I'll connect the benefits to it. But if you don't have the connection along the way, certainly you minimize your success. I want to completely change tactics here. And as much as I encourage everyone to read the book, which is really a framework of failure as a path to success, the author in me, something struck me that I don't know if anyone else who ever read the book or will, will picked up on this, but it was as much a curiosity and probably an incredibly heartfelt moment when you wrote the book. I went into Google and I Googled somebody named Kurt Brown Sr., and there were a whole lot of Kurt Browns and I'm scratching my head. I said, oh my goodness, which one is it? Bill, you dedicated the book to a gentleman named Kurt Brown Sr. And you went into your dedication that said, not a day goes by that I don't feel the deepest appreciation for the man who helped me to become me. Who is Kurt Brown Sr. and how did he help on your path to transformation? First of all, thank you for that question. You're welcome. Um, he was physically one of the most imposing, um, tough, built from the ground up a, a multi, multi-million dollar contracting firm with a heart of, he had that, that heart of a champion, of a champion for others, but he had that warrior mentality that he was going to bust through things and be his, his own man and do it his way. He, he, it took me 20 years to get him to say, what did you've done a good job? But he voted every year with his heart and wallet because he stayed with me without any kind of competitive edge, without anyone ever coming to the table. He was a person who taught me about ethics, 
the, the work ethic. This is what you do. Your word is your bond. You do these things. You do them now. You have to work. You have to outwork people. If you can't outwork them, you have to outthink them. And he came to me with, with a cerebral approach as much as that hard-edged work ethic. And I simply just loved him. He became more of a father figure to me than, than my own father. Matthew McConaughey, when he won the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club, and he stood up on that stage and he said, I think on any given day, everybody needs three things in their life. Someone to look up to, something to look forward to, someone to chase. And what he talked about is that person he looked up to, in the case of McConaughey, was God. But in your case, throughout the course of your career, was he, Kurt was then your guidepost. He was the person you look up to as helping you on your path. That's an, that is the ultimate compliment to an individual living or or deceased he was the one yeah and wow. and he uh passed away from from colon cancer and and at the end i was he was watching videos of me on steve harvey that was the last thing he was doing <laughs> right. that with ice on cream. your website yeah. yeah and he wasn't the kind of guy that you thought would do that and, and he was the kind of guy that uh that he would never tell you he did that but i learned <laughs> later from his family that he did and and that I uh, was one of the last people he talked to. Um, it was it was just he was formative for me, and that that memory will will burn forward. And that's the, the type of thing that, and the person that I want to be to others to say, you know what? Yeah, that guy did something for me, or that was something I learned, or that was a guy that's time on earth was was worthwhile because he he helped other people. I'm not egotistical enough to think that I can help anyone that, you know, we talked about this before, but yeah. people have to do the work. They got to do their own pushups, but they also have to look in the mirror and they have to own themselves. They have to own that accountability. They have to be that person at the point of contact that says, Hey, if it's to be, it's up to me. He, he yeah, but me I think there's something, both you and I were kindred spirits. We do similar things. We have a lot of people in our worlds, but this is not. And I love the mountain <laughs> shirt and you can see the mountain behind me in, in particular. I want to say, sure. um, let, 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 let's share with, with the audience, the, the, the expression on your shirt. Let's hear it. Never underestimate the mountain. Never I underestimate. It. I picked it up. And I thought, I got Chuck today. And it's just weird. The shirt just came to me. Out of all the shirts I have, it just came to me. I went, serendipity. There it is. Universe. I'm so sorry. I didn't throw you off track. That sometimes for any of us that Terrible. ever disbelieve the existence of God, it's moments like this. This yeah. is what there, there is. There's power. But I, I, I want to just talk about something else. Because each of the chapters in this book, you're talking about failure as a path to success. What you're really talking about is you in, in yes. your attempt to inspire others, but this is the look up to. You stated right early in the book, Winston Churchill, success is going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Yes. And Lincoln, but in particular, Jack Ma, you told the story of this guy who learned English, Googled China, nothing on it. And all of a sudden, this guy who was a bad student, not a particularly good athlete, didn't do anything of particular distinction. What a great story. And I don't think that people know that part of Jack Ma. Could you explain his, because I think it's a good guidepost. What did he do that led him to become the billionaire successful person in spite of the fact at 24, not only was he not close, he was not on any path to success. He applied to Harvard 10 times. 
yeah, I just kept trying. So I, <laughs> you know, if you watch, if you watch some of his stuff, he, he kept applying and he kept trying and he, he would come in fifth out of, you know, four. <laughs> okay. And, and he would just smile and said, I just wanted to try it again and try it again. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, when I was doing research for, for both books, the amygdala is that protective warning device. Yeah. And there's, there's only been one person that I found in my research, uh, a person, I think it was in Australia, who had a calcified amygdala that there was a there was a bone calcification so it didn't send the, sig the signals of fear hmm. you know and so that was one of the only people that we've been able to find that did not have feelings of fear he didn't have them for failure it was almost like a perverse weird game where the more right. he got beat up the more he thought this is eventually i'm going to pop something big and he did he tried so many times that he he just kept moving in different directions, whether he was going to be working for, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, whether he was going to work at, you know, get into Harvard, whether he was going to become a policeman. And he wanted beer one day and he Googled it and found you can't find a place to buy it. And there, and there it is. He was, he is the poster boy for failure. He is Mr. Resilient and resourceful. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because you talked about your own failures. And I think all, any of us, <laughs> in order to talk about our failures, we have to talk about the fears. And mm -hmm. often a predominant theme in the book is notwithstanding your amygdala working or not, all of us have fears. We can all be afraid. That's just a human response of going back to the jungle thousands of years ago. But there's a difference in the way that you see fear and the way that you perceive risk. Why is there such a stigma to go do the thing that you're afraid to do, knowing, or at least if you fail, all of a sudden, oh my God, my life is over. Why haven't we gotten better at that? We're really bad about the social yes, stigma of disapproval, of disapproval. Right. You know, we crave, and I tell you, when I was starting my climbers in my 30s, early 30s, and really almost to, to where I was going to be before I started my company at 35, mm -hmm. I, I was asked once by an attorney, do you still need to be liked by every one of your clients? Will you still jump off a building for them? That was the actual quote. Hmm. And I said, no, I said, no, but I do need to be appreciated. Right. And, and so I switched from having to be approved of, which is a, which is an external control. It's almost like you're a puppet. They have the strings They control your moods, your emotions. You don't have any of your person. You don't have the, the agency it's you've given it over. Right. And w once we move through those fears and understand where they come from the origin, Difference between danger, which is imminent threat from man, insect, or animal, and then fear that's real versus the fear that's you know imagined. We can look at those imagined fears dispassionately. We can cut them down. We can say, how much do we need this? How much do we really have to have this? And when you go up on stage, Chuck, and you know this from your speaking and when you present, everyone has the same bathroom habits. Everyone has those same fears. No one likes to be up in front of the crowd because they think, you know, and I look at it this way, hey, let's just share this thing. Let's have fun doing it. And you just learn. I think a lot of people are stymied by social stigma and it's, it's, they're never going to get out of their own way unless they do. Well, you provide in the book, you provide to me when I read it, it was a tool and you talk about framing failure. And I think when, when so many people early on in their careers and they see failure, that's the traumatizing part of it. It's like, Oh my God, I could fail. So I'm not going to try. So you know what? I'll do nothing. I'll just sit here and do nothing. But can you discuss how you came through to the concept of how we frame failure. And then I'd like you to tie it to Carol Dweck and her book, Mindset. So framing failure to develop the 
growth mindset. Talk our listeners through what that means. Three things you need. You've got to have the ability to do what I say is play it forward. And that means I want you to imagine your life. Go forward. Go to a stage and age where you can't do those things that you can do now. Will you have regret because you didn't do them? Now let that emotion just burn for a while. Then you've got to set up a framework, framing failure by an adjustable range of accepted failure. Meaning that you're adjusting and accepting as you go, learning what collateral damage is going to occur in that learning process. Now, failure is different from experience because through failure, the experience you can distill if you learn helps you move forward. If you don't learn from the lessons of failure, all you have is an experience. There's got to be an adjustable and adaptable forgiven range that you have that says, I'm going to flub this up. I'm going to flub this up. I am going to screw up thousand calls but on a thousand one thousand two i might get one and then thousand four thousand five it's going to be a little better but i'm going to have this expected range so my mindset what really was always one that was that was a growth orientated mindset it wasn't fixed on being able to do math problems it wasn't fixed on trying to be perfect i couldn't i couldn't do it so the frustrations extent and trying to be perfect were driving me freaking crazy yeah so and, and carol Dweck. Stanford researcher who ran this 20 year study. And she found that by giving these certain tests, ones that were insoluble to the same amount of students and then ones who could pick, hey, you you must be really smart or you must have worked really hard, tended to pick in the camp that supported the, and validated the beliefs that the other people had about them. Yeah. And those that went for the grades, the ones that want participation trophies today, the ones that have to be perfect to get the 4.0 to get into Columbia, the ones that have to have all of those things, including perfect SATs. When they got into later life and they met the reality of life, they often didn't have that ability to think through failure. Failure was crushing. It meant they weren't very smart. That's what they were taught. We're not very smart. We failed. So they didn't try. And the ones that had that fixed mindset had more willpower. She tracked them later and found the ones that had the willpower and the growth orientation became more successful, if you measure it by dollars, yep. than even those who had a higher IQ. Indeed. IQ does nothing unless it hits the field of play and can, and can, and can mold and be, be adaptable and be agile. Yeah, I teach a course at Columbia called Emotional Intelligence, and I blend in Dweck's research, and I talk about the continuum of open and the closed mindset. But I think the, 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 the highlight of that is many with the fixed mindset want to walk around and tell you how smart they are, as if that really matters, where what, what you have done in Fail More is you have redefined what it means to be smart. Not brilliant, not GPA, getting into the IV, whatever. That, that's not your contribution to the world. It's an achievement that's important to an individual. I understand it and everybody should live up to the achievements that they desire. But I don't think the school system does a particularly good job in defining what it means to be smart. You did, but also in your book, what you do not do, you're pretty clear about it is failure by saying you may fail is not an intentional license to just go out and, mm. and and do erratic behavior or to be irresponsible. Talk about that continuum. Failure, not a license to just go do whatever you want. There is an accountability here. I'm probably gonna butcher this, but I think it was, it's been attributed to Aristotle that, that 
you know, the, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. Indeed. So unless you define what those terms mean, you're going to give people carte blanche to try to do and think about what that really means. Does it means I can just get in my car and crash and this, you know, I wanted to really be clear on the lines of demarcation. And let me go back to, to, to Dweck because you're, you're bringing me back to the things that I learned from her <laughs> is that she would tell people in school systems today, stop being held by the tyranny of now and to luxuriate in the in that that you know power of not yet. Right. So I think that's where I was as I was growing. It wasn't about right now and trying to have a finite level of intelligence that I could bring to the table. It was about growing the plasticity of my prefrontal cortex by saying, "What if?" Man, that is a challenging question for me. What if I tried that? And then I tried it. Didn't work. What if I did? <laughs> <You> failed. <that? laughs> yeah. What if I did? Imagine so, that. You know what What else, though, and Chuck, it's a great point that you're bringing up because I need to bring this to my keynote tomorrow, is that people will resist that word. They will say, I don't fail. It was a stumble. I didn't fail. Right. And they euphemistically assign words to what you and I think is, just call it for what it is, it's failure. Whether it's micro or macro, it's failure. But I encourage people to, to do it responsibly, to judge and assess what's in their house, meaning their kids, their, their, their wife, and be responsible, work out a sheet of worst case. Uh, what is your, what does winning look like? Who do you need to help you get there? Because we all need people to get to get there together. And, and can you suffer a worst case setback? Make intelligent risks. Don't just dive out on something and do. Think and weigh it out. Be responsible. Yeah, it's, you know, we, we certainly learn in the world of Wall Street about measured risk, you know, not everything can be measured. So you can't do that. And, and particularly many people don't want to reduce themselves to a measurement. And I understand that because you talk about heart and connection. That's the human side of us and the human side of us fails, not the analytical side, not the, the right side, we fail, whatever that may be. So people get really wrapped up because so many people, Bill, in, in the world around us are crushed under the weight of these enormous expectations. So it's not that they failed necessarily. It's, mm. it's They may have, but the disappointment when somebody else layers on the expectations of what it means to that individual to be smart, all of a sudden somebody is making them feel dumb. And it's about how they feel. They failed or not. You talk about other people on their path to that failure. How did you feel though? And this is where I want to come to some conclusion. Where along the line did you say, yeah, it's beating me up and this cold calling is soul crushing. At what point in your life, and then I want to switch to what you do today in the service of others. Did you say, yeah, failure feels bad. But man, it's the best lesson I ever learned. Great question. I'll tell you what I did and I would encourage anyone to do this. Take the most painful moment based on a decision or lack of decisions. And how did you feel when you were in that place where you thought you couldn't escape? For me, it was a factory. It was, it was four walls. It, it was a woodworking factory where I had, to, I had to work and trudge every day, punch in, punch out. I had to do certain rote behavior. Right. I'm a flexible, creative guy. If I have to sit and do the same thing every day, I'm going to bore myself to tears. And uh, you're livestock. <laughs> you're not livestock. You're, 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 <laughs> it's you're Bill. <laughs> it, 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 it's not in my DNA. Yeah. So in following the course of my DNA, I, I would sit at that desk and I put up two things that I wanted materially. And I was, remember, I had a bullpen, a lot of, a paper clip and that, and that six inch ruler. Yeah. So I put up a picture of a car that I wanted, a picture of a place that I wanted to live with the view. 
And I thought, you know, this is about the, mo the momentum and the motivation to get there. Once I obtained things and was able to do that and breakthrough, and I, I was driving toward those things at first because I wanted tangible stuff. I didn't, I didn't want the intangible feel good. I wanted stuff for me so I could show myself, look what I can do now. I don't have to look at grocery prices. I don't have to look at this. I don't have to look at car prices. It was for me. Then the most powerful thing, the inspiration inside of me was, you know what? You are there for other people. As sappy as it sounds, as effed up as it sounds, you're going to do this because you just, it's in your DNA to do something for people. And my mother just passed away. She passed away in October. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And one of the, um, this is really wild. The last, one, of the, one of the notes she wrote to me when I was getting my master's, she had helped me fund my college experience by working. She was working and working and I was paying her off and, and she said, you don't need to pay me anymore. Just do something good for people. And I went, what? And my sister just found that, you know, when we go into the house. And I went, well, that's what I did. And I believe that. I believe that you got to make your your goals have to be realistic, that there have to be stretch goals and aspirations and dreams. Absolutely. But they have to be grounded in terra firma. They ha You have to be in the right environment, Chuck. If I, my aptitude was, if you're going to pay me a trillion dollars to become a math teacher, I would tell you, give me a broom. I'm going to go out in the street because can't do it. Yeah, but if you're in the right environment that supports those skills in the right fertile environment, that will encourage failure that is a, of thinking and trying ethically, you might have something if you work hard. Yeah, well, you are doing it now. And let, let, let's get to all of these things led you to this mountain. And if you go to your website, and I want, I want to call it out to our listeners, tell us what you do, because the way I see it, and like so many people who have come onto the program, you go to work every day in the service of someone else's success. Your mom's note about don't pay me back, but pay it forward to others. What does Bill do? What is your life like now? What is your company? And where do you spend your time in the service of others' success? You mentioned a mountain I use with every interview I have when I'm going to recruit people for my company or when I'm going to do a talk, it's more Maslow. I'm mm. going to show them a, a pyramid. Yeah, like a, mountain. a hierarchy. And, and we're going to climb through basic needs. Yep. And, and we're going to climb through these, these different places of career, inspiration and opportunity. And the top part where I think that I'm, uh, I'm attempting to, to, to live is legacy. And in legacy, you're the sovereign of, of the self. So what you said, there are other people expecting you to do these things. You've been able to divorce yourself from the manacles, the fetters, the chains of other people's expectations. Man, that is a power in and of itself. And when you can do that and you know, ain't nobody taking my respect. I'm not giving anyone the chance to judge me and I will not judge others. The, the poverty, uh, the, the, the power of the sovereignty of self is huge. So for me, if I think something is worthy of my time and I can quantify a certain feedback that the other person will have, there'll be a value to them, then qualify it in the process, I'm going to do it for them. Yep. And I'll do it without expectation of a price. I, I, I will do it for them. And so I, I'm there for people. I'm probably over, a bit overstretched, but my legacy is this. I just want to be that person that told you you could. If you want to see how I did it, I'll show you, but by no means will it be the way you do it. Take what I have, make it better, and share it with others. That's what I've been saying for 20-some years. And it's appreciated. And, and the mechanisms by which you do it, certainly a couple books, always forward or fail more, all, all good, all relevant, very much in, in what Bill describes. And as a professional speaker, I'd say, or do you spend more of your time on the speech circuit, teaching, igniting, inspiring? That's what you do. Fortunately, 
uh, it's been even through this period, uh, it's been a very, very, it's been great. Yeah. So there's been really good opportunities and there's been um, live events booked with an asterisk for, you know, July, June. So, and it's been great. It's been fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And, and I think this, and I think you're this person by talking with you and speaking with you, we have a, a, a tremendous connection. I was telling yeah. people about it right after I, my brain was just on overdrive, like it's going right now. And, and <laughs> because you sharpen, it's like iron sharpens iron. <laughs> and then I'm giving myself credit. Actually, you say that in the credit. book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the anvil. <laughs> but, <laughs> anvil. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I really think that, that when you look at it, sitting on a park bench or, or having that regret come in, and, and that was my biggest fear. So locate your biggest fear. Yeah. Ask yourself, what am I going to do to break through to the other side of whatever I determine or define success as? And then you talk about risk. You know, we can quantify a lot of risk, but at the end of the day, we can't qualify at all. Right. Some of that you're going to have to learn by getting in there intelligently, knowing your worst case and taking the steps forward. And activity is always going to be that thing that rules it, but you're also going to have to be the sovereign of self as you move through it. Yeah. You know, you brought me back to, to, one of my gurus was a guy named Tom Hopkins, and he wrote a book that was biblical to me called How to Master the Art of Selling. And there was something called the Salesman's Creed. I am not judged by the number of times I fail, but by the number of times I succeed. And the number of times I fail is in direct proportion to the number of times I succeed and keep trying. I read that about 40 years ago, and that mantra never left. And as I was reading Fail More, that's what it came to. And, 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 and so I encourage, it doesn't matter what your career is, particularly to the entrepreneurs, you are probably going to fail more than the salesman who's smiling and dialing, because that, that's just baked into the way it is. And most entrepreneurs on this program, on a climb to the top, have failed four times before they succeeded at the fifth. And none of them regret it because they learned along the way. Bill, where do our listeners find you? You can connect with me at Bill Woodich, W-O-O-D-I-T-C-H, or BillWoodich.com. You'll find the platform for my books and my speaking. And fantastic. And then I want to, one last thing. And then I want to close with the late, great Winston Churchill. You gave a lot of insight, but this is one last opportunity. What do you want them to do? So when you're on stage and you're giving the call to action, what is the final do this? I just, I had this written down before I talked. It says one thing. So as I finish off the prep for tomorrow's talk, it's a national talk. As I finish it off, I'm going to enter with the one thing that I want them to get from it. And the one thing is I want them to get one thing because I want to come at you and say, I want you to take one tool, one thought, make it yours. Maybe it's something that reaffirms, reconfirms, or something that opens the door for exploration. Just explore. Be an active listener. Be engaged in this game of life and be on a quest and continue the quest. That's the really the one thing I want them to do with what I'm giving them on their- I appreciate that. And part of that message is, is doing your best to drown out the distractions and stay hyper-focused on one thing. Because if you get one right, you go to two. And from two right, you can get to four, but you can't do it without the one. So let me leave. As I was reading Bill's wonderful book, Fail More, and he was- mentioning many of my own heroes, whose number one is Winston Churchill. I've read everything he's done, saw every movie. And I want to finish with Bill Woodich could have been attributed to this quote, but I think Winston beat you to it. It's that success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. And Bill, 
thank you for coming onto the program. Hang on a minute. I got to do this. I don't know if I'm going to keep you. Oh, sure. Uh, See the quote right there on the wall? I do success. Oh my goodness. Now you and I, I want to give, give a, a full transparency. It is the courage to continue. Success is stumbling, failure to fail. Oh, success is stumbling from failure to fail. No enthusiasm indeed. Bill, I had no idea you had that on your wall. None, honest to God. I had to show you. That's why I kept looking over there. I was thinking, I can't wait to show you what you're quoting is on my right. And oh I stay there and you goodness. know, I. Let me just close to one thing. Real, real of course. Quick. I am a student and I, I read at night um, on history and stuff that's you know just different yeah. things. And I learn from those lessons of history because if you don't learn from lessons of history, you can then repeat them. Yeah. But I learned what's in history, the arrogance, the overreach, you know, the, the, the jealousies. And you can learn from the lessons of those people in history and the indefatigable spirit that was Churchill. He did some terrible things. He failed terribly in World War One. He was dead. I mean, it was horrible. But credit but the, for World War II. Yes, the, the resilience, <laughs> the bounce, and what he did to get us involved, no matter where you come from in history, he's either the savior of Western Civ or he's one of the people that just wrote a lot of books and people, I, I visited his house in Chartwell. You can still see where he was in the bathtub and the ring came from the water. But he, <laughs> yeah, he, he of all the people, he's the one that I would love to sit down and, and have a conversation with. He's my number one, indeed. Well, Bill, thank you for being the modern day Winston Churchill and God. <laughs> oh, oh, man. To, to think that that's high expectations, but you're living up to him because when I read fail more, that's what I got out of the book. Well, well uh, let me say this. And, and I, I, I mean, this from the bottom of my heart. And I'm going to tell people this, you have schooled me and trained me on the art of doing these really, really, really well, because your research, your questions, your pivots, you were fantastic. And I have a lot to aspire to. And I just learned how much better I can be. So thank you for raising the bar. <laughs> thank you for raising the bar. <laughs> You're the guest here. I, 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 I let me do the work on this one. But thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful being your friend. I thank you so much for your time and for your insight and expertise and for writing the books and just bringing this platform to the world. We need more of it. And, and it's guys like you that make it a better world. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, you have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. Thank you, as always, for tuning in each week. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.